How you doing? Can you hear me? Hey, yeah, I'm good. How are you? Good. I thought if it was okay, I would just go ahead and do a formal introduction. And then if we decide to publish it, it's there. Does that sound all right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I will go ahead and do my little jingle and then bring you in. And I thought we should start with you just sharing your story. I, I think that's always a good place to begin. So does that feel okay? Yeah. Okay. I'll get her going right now. is the Healthy Families Podcast, and I am your host, Jenny Hatch. My special guest today is BK, and I thought we'd start the show with him telling his story. So BK, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, I guess uh, I'll start at the end about, you know, <laughs> why I'd want to come and have a conversation with Jenny Hatch. It's because, you know, you've been so nice. And uh, niceness is important. Um, and, like, the conversations about gender can, like, in today's political environment can get pretty acrimonious. But, uh, like, even with people on the left, it's gotten acrimonious. And even though we're not super politically aligned, um, I don't know. I just imagine we can have a nice conversation and not be mean to each other. Um, but, yeah, I don't know about, like... I guess as far as gender story goes, I mean, I was always like a tomboy growing up. Um, there was no like words in the world for understanding oneself as like gender queer or, I mean, there was just tomboy and there was just a lot of being told to start growing out of it. And uh, like when I think about growing up, I think about being told, you know, that's not ladylike, um, act differently. <laughs> have some different interests. Um, and so I do think of my gender story as being really like, like connected and intertwined, but a little bit separate and apart from like, um, sexuality. Um, but, um, yeah, I guess, uh, <laughs> I don't know where else to go as far as my story goes. I was thinking, you know, the, you, the article you sent, the, you know, Jenny sent me, it had to do with like pronouns. And I was kind of thinking of it as like pronouns in the workplace. Um, and so I am kind of like thinking about like the whole topic of pronouns and kind of like being told by your boss, um, Hey, you have to put your, your pronouns in your profile or, or on your business card. Um, that that's kind of like, a whole separate thing that's happening in HR from like what's happening in the queer community. Um, so I was kind of more like mentally prepping myself to talk about HR. Um, that's fine. I, you know, I, I like to hear people's um, stories because it really draws in an audience to say, Hey, this is something relatable. So 
if you'll indulge me, I'd like to share just a few minutes of my story. Oh, yeah. I don't, I've never told it to you. And I think it might help flesh out my position better as we go forward to talk specifically about um, gender issues in theatrical spaces, which is what my article was about. And um, a, a hard stance I took on trans issues in the theater because I'm, I'm an actor. And so it's kind of like my, my wheelhouse. But, you know, when I grew up, I was a tomboy, too. I had three older brothers and a younger brother, and I really spent a lot of time with my brothers and their friends, especially when I was a little girl. They pretty much all left home by the time I was 15. But up until then, I, I just hung out with the boys, and I was very comfortable with boy culture. And one day a week on Sunday, I put on a dress and went to church and acted more ladylike. And at the end of the day, as I look back, I think that really saved me. Because when I was a child, I did not understand all of the things that were roiling around in my mind, confusing me about my own gender. And I have come to learn, and this started when I was 33, that I was a victim of multiple sexual assaults as, as a baby, as a toddler. And that I was a victim of ritual abuse by people in my family and my community. And as I've kind of healed from all of that for these past 20 years, I've come to believe that those sexual assaults had so much to do with my own gender confusion. Why do I feel attracted to this woman? Why do I feel aroused, sexually aroused around women? It didn't make any sense to me because I wanted to have a boyfriend. I wanted to get married and have a family, but it was there and it was real. And then later in life, I found myself being sexually attracted to some children. And I'm like, what the hell is this? Am I a pedophile? Who am I? You know, and I, again, have come to believe that that sort of unnatural desire, which I do think it's unnatural. I don't think we're wired to do that necessarily. But I do believe that that was part of my trauma reality, the sexual trauma I experienced as an infant, six, six month old baby. And so as I've healed and reconciled and healed some more, I have come to develop very strong feelings about protecting children, especially children under the age of eight, that we should, as a society, move heaven and earth to do everything we can to protect the little ones. And then I feel incredibly passionate about keeping theatrical spaces pure so that parents can comfortably allow their kids to participate in their local community playhouse or even do regional or professional theater without any fear that their child is going to be molested or raped or ritually abused. And I personally believe the theatrical and Hollywood spaces right now are some of the most toxic. Perhaps the only thing more toxic than those spaces is the musical realm with recorded music in terms of the manipulations and the control over our artists. And there's also a lot of this going on in the modeling business where our young models are men and women are being tortured and manipulated and traumatized, needlessly traumatized in these spaces as they go overseas for a three month photo shoot. What happens when they're away from their families and their loved ones? So these are the reasons why I feel so passionate about speaking out publicly about how we can all do a better job of protecting the young people in our midst and create a healthier, just a healthier culture. So when I wrote my piece, 
for my blog back in the day. And then I republished it on my audition page and I titled it gender parody in the theater. Um, it was coming from a place of wanting to do a better job of protecting actors, young actors than what was done with me at cast parties and various backstage areas. I was molested and raped by fellow actors. And so it's an important issue that needs to be openly and honestly discussed. How can we do better in these spaces? And I think where I perhaps went off the rails with my, with my article and why I actually asked you to read it is in the claim that if someone is transgender, they're more likely to be a child molester and that we need to protect little children from transgender people. In the years since I wrote the piece, I've come to believe that that was a wrong position and perhaps too extreme. And that's honestly what I wanted to talk to you about. So how do you feel about that? Was that your biggest gripe? Oh, yeah. And I'm very happy to hear you say that, <laughs> that, you've, that you've moved on that. And you seem so capable of, you know, listening and changing your mind. That that's another reason why I was, you know, happy to have a conversation with you. Because um, you're like... I don't know, this feels like a loaded thing to say maybe, but like your political opinions just seem so, like you do feel, like you're so sincere about, like I believe you that you just, you want you want to protect kids, you know? And like, I, you know, I, I share that. Like I care about children. Um, but I, even if you hadn't been so explicit in that, um, like if I didn't know you and I just opened the beginning of the article and even if it was just like, you, like and that was taken out of it, I would have thought, oh, this is, this is a, someone who hates queer people. And I would have assumed you to be more of a hateful person than you are. Um, well, and that's honestly why when I published it and shared it on Facebook, so many of my theater friends uh, were disgusted by what I wrote. And remember, this is before COVID. This is, you know, as things were just starting to get ramped up in terms of like social distancing and the pandemic, this was before it really locked down the theatrical spaces, which were some of the most damaged. So many companies uh, dissolved, all, the, all these Broadway shows shut down. I mean, it was bad for a long yeah. time for theater people. And for me to take this hardcore position of we must protect the little ones from transgender people in the dressing rooms. Um, I really think that was what offended the most, most of my friends, you know, and some of them still have not talked to me in a couple of years because of this. And yeah. I was also a member of the Satera organization, which is an organization for women in the theater that I went to their first conference on the campus of Southern Utah University as a journalist, I was working for the Shakespeare Standard as their regional editor, and I went to the conference to cover it as a journalist. I interviewed so many of the people who started Statera, and this is an amazing organization that's become a worldwide influencer in the years since. It's been like 10 years or maybe eight years since they started, but they've really got a great reputation for supporting women in leadership in the arts as directors and producers. And so um, it was joyful, you know, for me as an actor to go and cross paths with all of these people. I consider them my friends. They invited me to be a speaker at their Denver conference a couple of years later, cause I was here in Colorado. You know, these, these women I respect and admire 
And for me to, to see the um, posts they put on what they were going to do in their theatrical spaces, uh, I just wanted to throw up because I was like, this is going to ruin free speech in the arts. It's a free speech issue. And so I came out with my hard position that day. I recorded a podcast, very passionately, 10 minutes of me ranting. And then I wrote this post and fearlessly shared it on Facebook, not really thinking, oh, this might cancel you, Jenny Hatch, from any future, you know, any <laughs> yeah. future collaborations you may want to have. Um, and I, it was on my mind, you know, is, is this going to just gut my career? It didn't. I've still had work, not much, but I've still had work since. But it's just like, did I did I cross over the Rubicon and go too far? That's been the question. And I honestly, BK, have not talked to any trans person about how they felt about it. And I, um, you know, have had very little feedback from my uh, fellow travelers in the arts, except the rejection. Nobody's come out and talked to me about it openly. Yeah, it's, it's just been a shunning. Yeah. And I do, I actually, I relate to being blackballed from a theatrical setting, I guess is what I would, could call it. Like I was doing, I mean, I wasn't, I didn't have a career of any kind. I was just doing open mics, but there was a guy collecting a lot of money and he even went on Ellen um, because he said he was terminal and he had like a GoFundMe and and then uh, Ellen was like, "Hey HBO, give this guy a special," and they and then HBO did, and it was and then he finally like said so much stuff on Facebook that it was just like his own story was so internally inconsistent that I was like, "This guy's lying." Obviously, he's not terminal. And then I got called racist, and I got I like people that I'd been friends with for over five years. Um. Like, they they were, t take this down or I won't be friends with you. And I was, like, so offended by such a threat that I was just like, well, then you're not a real friend. Never lost so many friends at once. And, and until I'd been in that community, I actually hadn't had that many friends. So it was like, I don't, it, it was, it was very wild. And I, it, it sent me into some mania that it took me a few weeks to come back from. But, and so I, I do... I think if I hadn't had that experience, I might be like, well, well, of course you got blackballed. You showed a lot of public hatred and people don't want to be like associated with that. But I actually, I have, I, I have a more like nuanced understanding of like social dynamics now. And I, I think that people do just don't want to be connected with something that seems really unpopular, like popularity, even for people in their fifties, is a big deal. It, you know, like high school never ends in that way. Um, I agree. So I'm not going to be like, <laughs> oh, well, these people who were ostensibly on my political side were just taking a political stand in my favor. Like, I don't see that as like the state of play, you know, like uh, some, I, I think that part of what started happening like in the workplace um, is that uh, there were a lot of HR complaints like, Hey, this person keeps misgendering me. And a lot of the people that were doing that weren't even trans, you know, like I've lived in a lot of rural, you know, I've been a lot of 
rural areas of Washington state where like sometimes you'll be like, oh, excuse me, sir. And then, you know, a mother of four will turn around and it's just like, oh, whoops, I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, ma'am, you know, <laughs> and like this person's not even queer, you know. And something that was happening at workplaces was sometimes people were being intentionally harassing to people who were queer or cis and then going to HR like, hey, this person keeps misgendering me. And then when the other person will say, oh, I just didn't know their gender. So as an HR uh, solution to protect the company from lawsuits, not because there was trans activists that showed up like, hey, start making everyone put pronouns on their on their name tags. It was more like HR was like, uh, here's a way for companies to not get sued. And then it became a virtue signaling thing on Twitter for sure. And like jumped the shark from there. Like, I don't know if it started on Twitter, but I definitely see it as like, uh, it showed like this whole pronouns thing showed up in people's lives as here's this new thing you have to do. Here's no explanation for why, but you're also being told that if you don't do it, you're a bad person who hates a whole community even though there's been no discussion about this or explanation about why this is happening and who it protects, which is just the company. Um, does that make sense? Well, it's right here in this document that Statera put out. And it was, what if I happen to make a mistake? Don't derail the conversation with your apology. Don't make excuses. Don't overcorrect and make it a big deal. And then do correct yourself quickly do correct others quickly, do not make the same mistake again. So this is what happens if I make a mistake. Well, I'm a free speech absolutist, and I don't care whether somebody makes a mistake or not. My feeling is we shouldn't be just hyper vigilant about each other's speech. If somebody misgenders you or me or gets it wrong, so what? You know, so the hell what? Why does it have to be everything? And that that is what I see in the theatrical spaces, because a dear friend of mine who's a professor at Southern Utah University, 30 years tenured, amazing theater guy who has given his lifeblood to this industry and teaching and training the next generation of actors. Um, he had a couple of his students come in who were non-binary and requested that he use the correct pronoun. And he said, I tried, you know, I told them up front, I would rather just call them by their names. Would that be okay? No, that wasn't good enough. They wanted the pronouns. A couple of times he made a mistake. So they filed complaints against the school and the school sided with the students and put my friend on what they called a, I can't even remember, just he could still get his income, but he's not interfacing with students. And they were considering having him have to pay repar reparations back to the students and then gutting his whole career. Well, he decided to sue the school. And right now that lawsuit has not been resolved yet. He said it's pretty much up in the hands of the school. What happens next? But he's like, I'm not giving up on my life, my career, just because I made a mistake. And so it's this type of excessive um, litigation and I'm going to get you, you know, we're taking you out. And it was these two girls who just, you know, 
he almost felt like he was targeted, that these students took his class just to take him down. And um, it's been a nightmare to watch the, the struggle that he's had over the last two years with this thing. And so that's a personal experience in theater, in university, that I'm directly clued into, that I am enraged about, that my friend has had to go through all of this stress because of this thing, this thing. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I'm also a free speech absolutist. Um, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I think that we have great conversations, because we have these principles <laughs> um, that... I mean, I'm also, this is part of why I don't like the structure, like the, the way that work and corporate entity, like corporate law in America is structured is, um, you don't have free speech at work. And like in, within a nonprofit space, like the nonprofit entity, um, it functions as a for-profit entity, like legally. Um, and so legally, uh, and, and then you know, at a at a school, um, I don't know if I, I actually don't know if it's a public school if that changes the free speech dynamic legally at all. Um, it might, <laughs> but you know, like you you have more free speech as a student at a school than as a professor who's like on the clock. Um, Cause it's not about like, it's not like the government is coming in and saying um, like giving a prior restraint on the professor's speech. It's his employer. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, no, I get it. Um, so there are all kinds of things that, you know, we're allowed to say as a student that we can't say as a prof because it's it's more like, well, this is your job. This is what you're getting paid to do right now. Um, if you want to take the time, I'd like to go through this line by line. Is that okay? Sure. Okay. I titled it Gender Parity. And I said, um, I just clicked out of it accidentally. I recorded this podcast in August of 2019. I hope and pray the honest-hearted thinkers in the theater will stand up publicly for free speech. And I said, Statera Arts posted these today. And there were just a couple of Insta blasts they put on Instagram that were, uh, you know, produced by, I think, some sort of an organization tied to the theater. Um, this Insta blast and my podcast is my response. Actors have traditionally been at the forefront of protecting free speech, but this Marxist swill will destroy the performing arts in the USA. So I've, I've had some pushback on that. People have said, I think actors are the most lemming-like people on the planet. They'll do and say anything to get cast in a show. I totally disagree with you. And what I meant was when I said that is that historically, uh, the playwrights especially, and I'm thinking people like Shakespeare and others were the outliers in the community providing commentary, parody, satire, humor, and some of the most devastating takedowns of power that have ever been written since creation. So that's what I was referring to, is that people in the arts historically have been the ones standing up to power. Yeah. Do you agree with that? Do you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. And I, I totally agree with the nuanced thought on that, too, that most people, I mean, in anything, like Cy Hirsch and Max Blumenthal talk about the careerism 
in journalism all the time. And then it's just like 5% of the journalists calling out, you know, like calling truth to power. Like in any career, most people are just trying to, you know, get along to what's the, what's the saying? They're just, they're just trying to stay accepted. Yeah. Well, they want to make their money too. So yeah, (laughs) it would just make their money. Yeah. So, and again, I'm in a position of privilege as an actor in the sense that I'm married to a man who's not tied to the industry. He provides a very comfortable life for me. So my, you know, daily bread is not dependent on my ability to get a gig. I, I do theater as I can fit it into my life. It's not my profession necessarily. You know, my husband's taking good care of me. So I come from a point of, I can use this, this internet for my free speech around this issue without any real fear, fear of my whole life being derailed. You know, whereas other actors, it's like, if they say one word and they get canceled from their job, you know, they have nothing. They're done. So I get it. Anyway, I said the next line in this is, I will not be participating in the utter insanity that is destroying the free expression that is so important for the arts to flourish. So that was the next line. And here's the next paragraph. And this is really where I think I, I angered some people. I know I did because of things they said to me and things that were written. Transgender people in the performing arts should be treated with kindness, dignity, and respect. But I personally will not be adhering to any speech codes, nor will I allow a speech minder into my rehearsal spaces and or productions that I personally direct, finance, and produce. So what do you think about that? I I don't know if you watched The West Wing, but I think I can... uh, I want to respond with a little... uh, Like, there's an episode where a woman is showing up to work at the White House with a Star Trek pin every day. And she's told, you can't do that. And she's like, what's wrong with Star Trek? (laughs) Like, what's wrong with being a fan? And they're like, nothing. It's just that you're at work and you're not a lot. Like, there's a dress code. Um, and, like, you just don't have free speech about Star Trek at work. Like, do, do you, I, I see a parallel there. What do you, what do you think? Um, I, can, I can see your point. And I even can concede it. Uh, but but who gets to decide you know you've got every school teacher in america practically who has uh pride flags in their classrooms and openly wears their pride jewelry and uh without any real concern about what the sort of messaging this sends to kids or how the parents may feel about it they're doing it and many of the administrators and uh PTA members and school board members do not feel like they can confront it or say, we do not want this here to be representative of how our school feels about these sexual issues, sexual identity issues. We would prefer that not be in our space. They're so afraid of being canceled from their jobs or ridiculed in society that nobody says anything except, yeah, rah, 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 we're all for, um, you know, this, this diversity, we're all for it. Well, there's some people who don't want that diversity being taught to their little ones, especially in an explicit way. 
And so you have this issue of the, you know, the banning of the books and what curriculum is appropriate for elementary schools and that that war is ongoing. So my question is, who gets to decide if you're in the West Wing and you don't want somebody affiliating with Trekkies because it's creepy or whatever? Yeah, <laughs> I, I can get the point. But who gets to decide? And I don't have the answer for that. You know, I, mean, I, I don't necessarily want yeah. Christian nationalists setting up the rules because they hate Mormons. I appreciate that about you a lot. I, yeah, the, the, a lot of people would be quick to just be like, the answer is that we just need to get my side to be in charge. But the fact that you are like, kind of know like, oh, that might not be the answer because anyone can just usurp that power and then who's in charge, you know? And so that's part of why, that's part of why I see you know, corporate America is uh, as uh, organizing society around work in a corporation is it like it makes it so that most of our lives are are oppressed and and I know it's kind of a loaded word, but fascist even like being at work is somewhere where you're not allowed to um you know be yourself at all. And then the only way that most like nonprofits are funded and then legally organized are through the same like legal structure as these like fascist oppressive structures. And so it's always the employer or, you know, I mean, a lot of time with nonprofits, you know, they're, they're just going to ask a lawyer, what should I do? How should I structure this? And that lawyer is just going to give you advice for, you know, it's like boilerplate. It's just, this is how you, the employer, stay protected. There's no concern for, you know, how do we have uh, conversations where everyone feels heard and supported? Like, that's not a goal of of that space at all. Um, but yeah, who decides is, 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 the, is the employer. Um, and in a nonprofit space, it's, it's the board of the nonprofit. Which I'm assuming, maybe that's too big of an assumption that these um, theater companies are like set up like something similar to a 501c something. Um, Well, I've been a part of the fair and the arts organization for the last year or two. And the stories that are coming out of there are that um, if you stand up to any part of Woke Incorporated, you lose your job. You're you're done. And so we've had several artists who have come and shared their stories on this monthly uh, group podcast we have on Zoom. And one guy said, you know, it took every ounce of courage. He's from New York. He'd started his own theater company. He said it took every ounce of courage I had to go ahead and speak my mind on these issues. And he was a gay guy, you know, very open about his sexuality, but he just felt that it was going too far in terms of free speech. And he said, I have found that there was no blowback on me for speaking up, except people going, wow, how did you get the courage to do that? He said, I'm finding I have more work than ever, more people reaching out to me, wanting to collaborate around theatrical spaces and say, I don't want to be encumbered by all of this woke nonsense and the speech codes and that you must adhere to this, that, or the other, or we're going to cancel you. It took the fear out of the arts for him, and he's flourishing. 
And then there was another guy in California who was running a ballet company. And he was being told by the feds who were giving him grant money that he had to have so many minorities as part of his company or they would not give him a grant. And he said, I, pe I pick my people based on their ability to dance, not the color of their skin. So once his community found out that he was not going to be given the grant because he would not kowtow to the power, uh, they stepped up and held fundraisers for the company, made sure every seat was sold in each performance, and his company is also thriving. So I personally think these are the canaries in the coal mine telling us which direction we're going to go from this cesspool of corruption and control over our theatrical spaces based on who gets the government money. Because the government money has always been tied, especially in the last 10 to 15 years, to the companies adhering to whatever mandates they send down. And I include in that those mandates how many of your people are vaccinated and how many of your people ha are up to date on all their vaccines, their flu shots, which I don't think the federal government should be involved in that level of control over theatrical companies. Yeah, yeah, hard agree on that. <laughs> Definitely, I believe in more decentralized control of theater. Here's the next line in piece. I said, I will not be using pronouns on my business cards or when I introduce myself to strangers. And most importantly, trans men will not be allowed in the dressing rooms with minor females. It is not going to happen on my watch as a child actor. I was molested and raped in a variety of theatrical settings. Children will be protected from sexual deviance in my theatrical companies. So again, I think this is the line of thinking that most people had trouble with. The assumption that if somebody's trans, that they're going to molest a child. And I really did not think that through. I've even had people tell me, I think transgender people would be the most protective of children. I've heard that here in, on Colin. Various people have stood up for transgender people understanding how devastating sexual assault is for children. So what do you think of that? That and also being especially, I mean, I I was an out, I mean, I came out as gay, you know, as a lesbian when I was 15 um, to my peers and family. And I mean, more to my peers when I was 14. Um, and over the years, I got a lot of like, like I was in 12 step and people would say things like, not the religious people the more of the people who weren't even religious would say some really low key, I mean, not low key, but just bigoted stuff like, Hey, so you shouldn't sponsor other girls. Right. Cause like, or if I, if a girl asked me, you know, I had a car when I was 16, uh, not, you know, not, not everyone had a car. And so it would be like, Oh yeah, I'll drive you and you. And then, another, you know, some other, pro you know, often another female would be like, Oh, well don't be inappropriate to them. And so I was very like, I'm still, very sensitive to like what people are going to think when I'm around kids, because I know that people have this, you know, people think that if you're queer, then you're sexually deviant. And so more likely to abuse children. Like I, from a really early age, I, I, I picked up with something that a lot of people carry around. And are so you are you comfortable sharing what you were in 12 step four? Oh yeah. I, uh, I went to rehab when I was 15 for, I, I like, <laughs> doing a lot of drugs mostly okay. i was uh smoking weed every day and then um 
I was doing a lot of hallucinogens and um, uh, whatever pills I could. And then when I got caught, I was like, I should go to rehab. And that was partly an excuse to like get away from my crazy parents. I didn't know at the time, but my mom had dementia and it was, you know, slowly getting worse and worse. And it started when I was around nine. Um, so I was always like trying to get away from the insanity in my house and getting high was part of that. Um, but I also think I was really like, like I've talked about before, like I've talked with you before about how I, I think I had a lot of medical stuff going on. Like my ovaries were just never acted right. And so I also was just smoking a lot of weed for like physical comfort. Um, but yeah, so I was in NA and like went to meetings every day. Like I went to rehab for a month and then went to meetings every day after probably because it was like this great excuse to be away from my house. Like, oh, I'm going to go to a meeting. And it was also a lot of people to learn to socialize with. So I'm really grateful for being socialized by 12 step program. Um, but wait, I lost my train of thought. Uh, I just asked if you were comfortable sharing what it was for. I've also oh, done a ton of therapy. I've had my own mental health background. I, again, I think tied to the ritual abuse I struggled with as a child. And I found lots of healing in uh, those group therapy sessions. And I've never done a 12-step program, but I have gone to um, the groups that's for families of alcoholics because my brother was a raging alcoholic. What's that group called? Al-Anon? Oh, Al-Anon, yeah. Yeah, I went to a couple of those meetings. And they really wanted me to go all in and do the whole thing. But I just, I did not have time. I, my kids are all teenagers back then. And I, I wanted to, but it was just too big of a time commitment. But I met some lovely people there who were wonderful and helpful. And each interaction I've had with either a therapist or a fellow survivor, especially online, I've crossed paths with so many survivors, has been helpful in my personal journey. And so I feel incredibly passionate about creating spaces in families and schools and theaters where parents can comfortably send their children without any fear of them being trifled with. And that's the goal of all of my work online is to clean up the schools, the theaters, sports, and just make it safe for kids so that they can have a life and they don't have to grow up with all this baggage that I've had. When I was in high school, I would wear men's underwear on the outside of my clothing, boxer shorts. I'd put on a pair of sweats or thermals or something. And then I'd put a pair of men's boxer shorts over and I'd go to school like that. I did not understand back then. I just thought it was being, you know, artistic and weird and, you know, theatrical. Yeah, I, did, awesome. I did not understand back then that that was a sign of being sexually assaulted. That when we reach for the under other gender's underwear, it's, it's a, it's a sign, you know, that some, something has happened and you're almost trying to signal to anybody who'll notice, hey, this happened to me. This this was real. And then when I when I had my big breakdown when I was 21, I had a full blown psychosis. I was out in the streets in my underwear. And when a when a person does that or they're naked, they're just out there flashing everything. Again, it's a sign that they're they've been they've been trifled with. Their bodies have been hurt, and they're trying to get people to notice. Will you look at me? Will you notice what happened to me? I didn't understand that back then either. I was so ashamed of my behavior. I wanted to crawl under a rock. I didn't understand why I, would, why I did that. But now I have a much deeper understanding of those who feel an almost compulsion to flash 
and to share their, their nudity with anybody who'll notice. And you know what happens when somebody gives them a nod and says to them, I see you, I hear you, I understand what you've been through. It sometimes that's all they need to just say, really, you notice, thank you. And then they can heal. I mean, yeah, on that lot, for sure. I, I definitely, I, yeah, my experience in 12 step is that people, you know, that just the being able to sit and listen and feel heard, the, the therapeutic value of that is, you know, especially among people that are, I mean, and in so many 12 step meetings, I, I was never sexually abused, but, uh, some, you know, someone would start sharing about their sexual abuse and then, you know, every person that shared thereafter would have a sexual abuse story pretty much. Like it, I learned from NA and AA that it was a lot more rampant than I could have imagined in the world. Um, and I, I, I don't know if I've said this yet. I definitely meant to, <laughs> but you know, I'm so sorry to hear what you went through and it's just ugh, like, it's so horrific. And I'm just so, and I, well, it's I, particularly insidious when it's coming from your own father. Yeah. And, the very person who should be taking care of you and protecting you when they are the, the molester, that is when it really messes with your mind. And so I've really had to struggle to forgive and, and also, uh, you know, advocate for myself to my family and to anyone who's interested because the, the willingness of the family to say, this didn't happen. Let's shove it under the rug. She's crazy. That's their go-to position. Even today. Mm. And it's so been a sorry. long time that I've been talking about this. Yeah, I'm so sorry. I mean, it's, I, and I, I, I definitely don't mean to be like, oh, like I, everyone, I think, has their own response to trauma, and I, there probably are like, I, I you know, I, I haven't personally like read anything about that, but what you just said about how, you know, a lot of people respond to their trauma by needing to flash their under, like, I. I could believe that, but I really, I don't believe that just because someone, especially like, because there's so many people that describe that this started when they were, you know, five years old, they were, they just wanted to wear more effeminate clothing, even though they were assigned male at birth or, you know, and not having anything to do with, you know, trauma, just, you know, like, and normally kids don't even think about the underwear because kids don't even see other people's underwear. Normally it's, you know, dresses, pants, you know. I definitely never had a feeling of like, oh, I'd rather be wearing boxers than panties because it never occurred to me that boys were even wearing different underwear. I mean, my brother and I, we, we got dressed in separate bedrooms, you know. So I never saw my brother's underwear, really, you know. Um, I just never thought about it that way. So, um like I'm I, not saying that everybody who dresses in drag or who wears the other underwear is necessarily a victim of abuse. That's not my point. But for some of us, it is a sign that something's off sexually. Somebody's messed with our bodies. And we're trying to convey to anybody who will see or listen or hear, instead of just saying, oh, you're crazy, maybe there's something we could explore here and see if we could fix it, help it to heal. And I'm all about the healing. So I'm yeah. going to just finish this up. There's just two more paragraphs in my little piece. And then we can talk about whatever after that. I said, and if someone has the audacity to interrupt a rehearsal that I am directing 
to correct my politically incorrect speech. They will be kicked out of the company for wasting my precious time and the time of their fellow actors and crew members. Cultural Marxism has no place in American theater and it should be loudly and publicly denounced wherever it rears its ugly, obnoxious head. Jenny Murray Hatch. So this is the other thing that people have really been upset with me about in claiming that the transgender movement has anything to do with Marxism, communism, the clampdown of free speech, especially the activist transgenders, they get very upset with that because they, some of them don't consider themselves politically involved at all. And so to, to claim that they're just a tool of these totalitarians and they're being used as fodder and the culture wars, they're the ones who are like, no, that's not who I am. I am just out here advocating for myself, my right to exist, my right to have some dignity and respect, you know, and I can understand that argument, but whether they like it or not, I personally still believe that the movement is being uh, manipulated, if you will, or somewhat funded by those who would like to use speech minders on all of us to control just absolutely control top down our speech. So what do you think of that? Well, I, I definitely don't think it it's from Marxism at all. And ironically, like just a couple days ago here on this app, um, we got into it about, you know, I was in a room with a bunch of Marxists and, you know, one of them the, started saying that they don't like this new, you know, gender ideology being pushed on kids in school. And uh, I was kind of like, can you be more specific? What do you mean by that? And uh, he was like, you know, teachers showing up in school, telling kids what their genders are. And I was like, I don't know where that's happening. <laughs> but if you could pull up some, and he never did pull it up. But then he also said, I was like, is it, is what you're objecting to just people being out in school? And he was like, well, why should people be coming out at school? And I was like, well, sometimes it's just, you know, like teachers have sometimes a, a kid will ask, you know, what's your husband's name? And you might be like, well, I don't have a husband. I have a wife if they're whatever, you know, in my case, if I were a teacher, I could imagine all my students just assuming, you know, I grew up a boy and then having to say, like, actually, I played girls softball. I wasn't playing that, you know, whatever. And so just kind of like having a normal, honest conversation. And then when those kids go home, them being like, you know, that like I could imagine it being lost in translation and then it feeling like, oh, it sounds like a teacher is trying to. But back to this conversation with the Marxists, uh, I I said, you know, because they started saying, you know, all this gender stuff is, is new and it's being pushed too fast. And I said, what's fast about it, first of all? And second of all, it's not new. And, you know, people with many genders have existed. You know, there have been cultures for thousands of years that have had more than two genders. The understanding of gender is being attached to a, one particular anatomy is a lie of settler colonialism. And then they all got so triggered. <laughs> and they said, as Marxists, we're not going to agree that settler colonialism destroyed trans identities. And I was like, well, this is kind of a historical fact to me. <laughs> so, like, this was, like... 
this turned into like a yelling argument almost. And I, you know, and uh, at one point I said, look, I know that there's this belief on the left that there is this trans agenda that has taken over, but it's, there's a corporate agenda that like I'm saying in these, you know, in this HR context, and then there's other corporate agendas, like, you know, not actually doing anything to provide real social change for anyone, but just optics. And so it's like, okay, well, we need to show that our money is going to diversity. So like in the example you gave of, you know, your friend that was told he had to hire a certain number of dancers, like most of the most radical left is very against uh, affirmative action in that way, because it breeds resentment, it breeds acrimony, and it's not real change. It doesn't really, you know, it makes people think, oh, the the blacks are getting all the all the extras in society and the whites are being left out because, you know, one person was given a job over a more qualified person. And like, that's just not where it's at to most people on the left. I'm, I went on kind of a tangent, but um, back to the... I hear you. Back to the thing with them being triggered. And I was like, you know, there's no, there's no trans agenda. This is just corporate. This is the oligarchy making us hate each other. This is them co-opting the trans community, which isn't even a cognizing force. You know, we're just randos dispersed throughout the country and world. And we're not, you know, we don't have an agenda. And then this guy says, okay, fine. There might not be a trans agenda, but there's, I do believe in social contagion. And I, I said, well, <laughs> you know, I said to my partner the other day, I wish I'd know, I wish I had transitioned 20 years ago. And I mean, tra- it's just kind of a catch all word for, I wish I had, I wish I'd done hormone replacement therapy, which would have been not only, you know, changed my gender appearance, but has been like a medical miracle for my body. And my partner, you know, I was like, I wish I'd done this 20 years ago. And my partner said, well, how could you have known? Um, and I, like, obviously in that context, it would be weird, right? Because there wasn't a social contagion yet, right? Like, obviously that's not how I feel about it. How I feel about it is, you know, like this, like the truth of myself was hidden from me. And and like the truth of my my understanding of myself is kind of like being in between the genders or, you know, all kinds of, you know, weird things I feel about gender and sexuality now. Like, I I was only allowed to think in these, like, very, you know, I know it sounds kind of trite at this point, but binary, just limited. Um, And so... So what what you're saying is what people would call social contagion, you would call your uh, come-to-Jesus moment of clarity, of saying, no, this is who I am, and I am going to now take the steps to identify with who I really believe I am. That is not social contagion. That is just my personal reality. Right. Correct. And it, and it does feel really similar to um, like when I started to understand myself in the late nineties as um, a lesbian, you know, that was the only like identity out there. You know, there were, I didn't have words like gender queer, um, but it did feel like, the world was kind of like, why are you so weird? And then I did, you know, and, and why don't you like boys? And I I was kind of more aware of not not being like fantasizing for growing up and having a wedding and, you know, that just, just wasn't me. 
and I was just wanting to do all these other, <laughs> I just had all these other interests. And so it, it, I wasn't even aware of like, I wasn't even thinking of myself as I'm attracted to girls, but I definitely knew like, well, I could imagine handing ho- holding hands with a girl and I, I don't want to hold hands with a boy, you know, like it wasn't, it wasn't sexual. Um, and so there was also this like, this feeling and like, like there are kids that go to school who have, you know, same sex parents. Um, or same gender parents or whatever, you know, like there are kids that know that they're in a queer family. Um, and so I, I also care about those kids and not wanting to stigmatize them and have them have to go to a school kind of like I did, where they had to pretend that their identity or their family's identity didn't exist. And like the internal, like when you feel like your existence is so shameful, it shouldn't be said um what kind of like internal damage and stigma that does to kids you know oh it's huge i'm in boulder which is kind of like a hot spot for gay families and so there's just a lot of people in town who are living this lifestyle and when my kids would cross paths with the children of lesbian household or whatever i encouraged them i said be kind make them your friend everybody just wants to fit everybody just wants to know they've got a friend and so my daughter, especially my oldest daughter, one of her best friends in high school was, was a, a daughter of, of two women. And she is one of the most lovely people, so talented. And, you know, she got married. She's had a child. She, she chose, you know, to be a heterosexual or she is a heterosexual. It's not necessarily that if you have gay parents, you're going to grow up and embrace everything about your parents or grow up, you know, get groomed if you will, to be a lesbian. And so um, that's just been my go-to position as a mom, that we have nothing to fear from our gay and lesbian friends and their children. And I think it's a healthy approach. I mean, how, how can we do any less for these little ones who, again, are just trying to fit in, who may be feeling like something's off with them because they don't have a mom or they don't have a dad? You know, I know there's a feeling in, from the children I've crossed paths with of kind of like a father hunger that they wish their dads were more a part of their day-to-day lives. But you know what? So do kids of divorce. Yeah. So, you know, the stigmatizing, I honestly think BK that we're getting past that, that that was more of a nineties, early two thousands thing based in fear and that people are much more big hearted now, especially towards the kids to just make them feel safe and welcome. It is, it, it, something feels like it's cycling back though. Like when I was coming out to adults as a, as a teenager, I got a lot of like, well, you can't know that. And, you know, maybe your parents didn't give you the right toys, <laughs> which I remember thinking like, what does that have to do? Like this, this collapsing of, cause I was like, well, I just told you I have a girlfriend and that I'm gay. What is, what is the gendered toys I played with as a kid have to do with this? Um, but, we, <laughs> and now uh, it feels like I'll hear a lot of people say, you know, oh, I don't, there, there's this Glenn Greenwaldish <laughs> kind of, right. I, sometimes I wonder if Glenn can hear himself that he sounds kind of like, I'm not being articulate about this at all. I'm sorry. No, I get you. There's hypocrisy from all of us. And we don't see our own inconsistencies sometimes 
until somebody points it out right to our face. And, and it's like, oh, yeah, you're right. You know, that happens to me all the time. You are being inconsistent here with your views. Well, help me to see that because sometimes you get colorblind or just blinded by your own biases. Yeah. (laughs) And there is this, you know, there's this feeling of like, people were like, oh, why do you dress like that? Do you want to be a boy? And for so long, I was like, no, I don't want to be a boy. Like there was something about the defensive posture I took over the years that almost made it hard to, when I finally did find out that like testosterone was a possibility, I had so much like internal, like, no, that's not who I am. That's not, I'm, I'm a this identity that I've been defending my whole life. And that, and, and I, I didn't have a lot of like open-mindedness to growth and change because I'd been stuck in this defensive posture. Um, like I remember being, you know, in high school, like my friend that I'd been hanging out with for like a month and we'd been hanging out every day, just randomly in class said, this is the ninth grade. I think we should put all the gays and lesbians in, on an Island and blow it up. <laughs> and like, I was like, why? <laughs> like what? And, uh, and he, you know, because, and his, his, he was like, they have to be separated from the children. And I was like, but like, gays and lesbians come from like they're born by straight like that won't even get rid of all the gays and lesbians though (laughs) it's funny to me now that that was my response because i think if i heard something like that now i i would just be like too triggered you know what i mean there was something about like my 14 year old self that like could handle that and then just be friends with him still Um, well because i grew up in the theater so many of my best friends came out later as gay and lesbian people and i dated a lot of guys in high school and college who all came out later as gay men. And I've had a long time to think about who, what, why, where, when, do they really think they're going to be happier as gay men or as living in a lesbian relationship or just being alone, not really, you know, having a partner, even the Mormons, it's okay to be gay, but you cannot act on your, um, you know, your sexual identity in a sexual act and still remain in good standing in the church. And mm-hmm. so they're okay with people identifying, but to get married and have a family and, you know, you have to do, do that outside the church. And so it's been heartrending to watch, especially family members come out as gay and lose their affiliation with the church. And our church has been just particularly hammered by society for being too hard nosed too extreme, not allowing gay and lesbian couples get married in the temple. And, you know, it's really been uh, a source of a lot of animosity for members of my church. And, um, I affiliate with the church's position and defend it, but with a bit of a bleeding heart, you know, every, again, everybody wants to fit. Everybody wants to feel like they're comfortable in their family and their culture and their neighborhood. And if you in a a lesbian household are not allowed to even have your mothers come to your own wedding, you know, that's a big Mm. deal. It's a really big deal. Yeah. And so I, I haven't sorted it all out yet in my own mind as we move forward, because I just see it getting more complicated but the church has said they're never going to budge. You know, it's, this is who we are. 
and this temple ceremony is for heterosexual couples and so how much hate that brings on our heads as Mormon the Mormon people I don't know that that remains to be seen I do know that having been rejected since I was a little girl I mean like a neighbor down the street when I was six told me that I was going to hell because her mother who was faithful Baptist told her I belonged to a cult <laughs> and then I was going to burn in hell for all eternity because I was part of this this cult so that has been my experience for my whole life you saw it happen just last night in the chat room you know yeah you are a part of a cult jenny hatch i am so weary of people saying that to me yeah but it is the one true thing that triggers me and i start to get incredibly hostile to people saying it but i'm so i'm so tired of it why can't i just practice my faith without everybody dunking on me or hating me or you know, proving to me that I'm not worthy of whatever, even having an opinion. And so um, I understand how it feels to be rejected for these heartfelt things. But, I, you know, I don't know what it's going to take. And especially in this space with, you know, a bunch of nerds who were probably picked on and bullied as kids. It's, you know, people who are bullied often want to bully other people to, you know, for that quick fix. <laughs> For that quick high and uh yeah it's hard well, to watch like i said it, i'm weary of it I'm yeah five it's been my whole life could we just end the whole you belong to a cult if you practice a certain faith it's it just i'm so over it but you know i just i anticipated getting worse and that's that's where it's like what's our, what's around the corner <laughs> you know you yeah. start lining up all the mormons and chopping off our heads I mean, <laughs> and I do hope I I know I know I don't know anything about the Mormon Church, but I have heard, uh, you know that they've changed their positions before, so I'll remain hopeful about. Well, their they softened it around the kids. The initial position was if you have a child growing up in a gay or lesbian home, we don't want them to get baptized until they're eighteen. And the reason why is they didn't want the kid to go through the, you know, I want to be loyal to my mother's or my father's. I want to be loyal to whatever their values are. And they didn't want the kids to have the conflict of like making this decision when they're, we get baptized when we're eight. So they didn't want them to have to make that decision as a child that would put them at odds with their parents. And so they're like, we're just going to defer this until they're 18. Well, that was a big scandal amongst a lot of Mormons because they're like, hey, if my kid wants to get baptized, I don't care what's going on with the parents. You let them get baptized. So it was gay and lesbian couples themselves who were like, you know, this is too much. So they hmm. softened that. And the, the language coming from Salt Lake City in the form of uh, the apostles and our prophet has definitely, I think, become more kind and more inclusive. But I, I honestly, BK, I don't ever see them changing the temple policy. I think well, what will happen is that they will encourage couples to get married civilly, all couples, get married civilly, anybody can come. And then for those of you who want to get the sealing, which the sealing is a different, um, it's a different ceremony. You know how most couples, when they get married, it's till death do you part? Mm-hmm. 
in our temples, we get married for eternity. It's, it's a long-term thing. And we believe that this faith, we have the priesthood power to confer and endow couples with this ability to be married beyond death. And so we are, to my knowledge, we are the only religion in the world that has that as, you know, something that we do. And so for, for us to say, yes, gay and lesbian couples can get married for eternity. If we perceive that those relationships are not going to last beyond death because of God's law and God's, um, positions on these issues, which, you know, the scriptures are very, very clear on gay and lesbian relationships. Um, in Leviticus, it is pretty harsh, you know, um, even if people wear clothing of the opposite gender, they're like, don't let them do that. You know, I think if I remember right, the punishment for that is even a death punishment, like a stoning or, you know, certainly being cut out of, cut of, cut out of the neighborhood. And, um, I haven't sorted that one out in my own mind, but, um, like I said, if the church were to allow gay and lesbian couples to be sealed in the temples, I think most of the most ardent uh, supporters, believers in this faith would probably leave the church. Yeah, that's that's very convincing <laughs> that that's the state of play. Um, I guess I, you know, I was being a little too hopeful because I was like, didn't I hear that the church was you know, back in the day, a little more racially, like, they didn't allow other races in, and then they just reformed. Um, well, it's right in the Book of Mormon. There is this notion that if you are white, that you're more pure, you're more delightsome. It's right there in the language of certain verses. And so people read that, and they're like, what the heck? What is this? <laughs> you know, even me, I'm like, it just feels creepy, too, too much, too far. And, and how I've sorted the racial issues out is that in the Bible, you have right at the beginning, Heavenly Father cursing Cain with the skin of blackness for his sin. And that all of the descendants of Cain have this, you know, this skin tone. And my feeling is it's Heavenly Father's business who he confers that identity on. And in the scriptures, it happened again with a people called the Lamanites, that to differentiate them from the Nephites, who were the righteous, righteous people, the Lamanites were wicked. He put a skin of darkness on them so that the Nephite people would know, you know, these people are from the, the families of the Lamanites and you maybe don't want to, you know, get together with them because your kids might become wicked too. Again, I feel like that is Heavenly Father's business. It's his choice, not ours. And does that does that mean that somebody born into those families has no hope or that they're less than white people? No. In fact, the message of the Book of Mormon is that it is those people who are going to carry the day, win the day, even in our day, blossom as the rose, become more righteous than the Gentiles, the white people. I mean, there's some pretty mm. condemning scriptures in the Book of Mormon about the white Christians in America that mm. are very specific and sobering, 
when you think about it, it's like, okay, what are we headed for as a people? Anyway, it's, it's so controversial. I hate to even talk about it because I don't need other reason for people to hate me. <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm no expert and I've, I've never read the book, of more, but I do, you know, I, I told you before, I've been watching a lot of Russell Brand and um, I haven't caught up on his stuff this week, but you know, he's, I think I could call him a Christian or at least he seems to really like the teachings of Jesus. Um, he definitely has a moral compass and yeah. he's not afraid to speak his mind. I love him. Yeah. And, and he was in this conversation with Bill Maher. Uh, on Bill Maher's podcast, um, it, not his HBO show, his pod, I forget what it's called. But anyway, uh, Bill Maher, uh, or, or Russell was like, don't you think that these are all metaphors in the Bible? And these, and, and Bill Maher was like, no, of course not. People from those times were too stupid to understand metaphor. And I'm like, wow, Bill Maher is really simple. Um, he hates people who are religious. <laughs> yeah. He really does. And like, I don't I. You know, I definitely, I don't, I really admire Russell Brand, and I think that there are some, there are some truths that are so nuanced and complex that only metaphor can begin to capture it. Um, and so I, I'm, I, I used to think that there wasn't much value in religious texts, and Russell Brand has definitely made me think differently about it recently. Um, there's but, so much, there's so much just good horse sense common sense in the scriptures. I love reading them. I we're studying the new Testament right now as a family. And as I've been re, you know, reading the, the acts of the apostles and how they felt about things. When Jesus came, they believed he was going to instigate a war with swords and there was going to be bloodshed. And right up until the day he was murdered, his own disciples were like, what, when's the war going to happen? We're ready to go to war. And he's like, you don't get it. You don't get it. I didn't come down here to wield a sword and fight Caesar and win the day with armies. That's not what this was about. And so there was even great confusion back then about what role Christians have to play in the world and how do we fit and what can, what good can we do? And he said, you know, follow me, do what I'm doing. I've set this pattern. And when you read, especially the Beatitudes, about, you know, Gandhi said when he read the Beatitudes, his heart melted towards Christianity and Jesus Christ because it was so good. It was so positive. And so that that's the, the part of Christianity that I try to focus on in my own personal behavior. You know, it's, it's difficult to aspire to it, but it's there. Yeah. You can definitely aspire to it every day and set the goal to be like that. And um, so... I think we can win a better day for everybody. I believe we can learn to live peaceably. I am going to go all in with the political candidates who are talking peace. And it's why I've pretty much decided I'm going to vote for Robert Kennedy Jr. He is just wowing me with all of his interviews and yeah. really blowing my brains out because I have been dreaming and praying and hoping for somebody like him to stand up. And here's this fearless guy you know, who speak in my language and standing up and, you know, if they could kill him, they would kill him yesterday. And he's just like, yeah, I'm not afraid of them. Yeah. Yeah. I'm 100% with you on that. I'm, I'm troubled by his positions on Israel and, and then, and then using 
you know, pinkwashing the LGBTQ community to defend his, you know, he was like, well, you can't be a transvestite anywhere in anywhere but Israel. <laughs> it was like, okay, well, trans- that's not the right word anymore, first of all. <laughs> He's and, not, uh, he's older than me. He doesn't know the lingo. Know. But, but, you know, if you're going to, if, if my name is going to be in your mouth, use the right name is what I'm saying. You know, like, yeah, I'm not going to, I'm it. also not. I get it. I'm not a, I literally laughed. I gut laughed when I heard him say that. I mean, it was, I, I you know, you have to have a sense of humor about this stuff. <laughs> but also. Well, allow people to be who they are. Yeah. And if they say a word wrong and it's not fit with the current narrative and they don't even understand, you know, what they did. You don't have to crucify them. It does. It reminds me of how Brianna Joy Gray has talked a lot. And I know she says she has written a lot about it. And I'll admit I haven't read these articles. But she's definitely talked a lot about it in her podcast on Colin uh, about how in 2015, like, this, the, the race conversation really jumped the shark. And it was a lot of people getting screamed at that they were being racist. And it was always by other white people like especially in portland there was this crazy thing happening and i I think there's a lot of parallels here with the gender conversation i do too i do where um you know and i'm not one who believes like oh there's no racism but but you can you know there these things are nuanced and complex you know like there's a lot of co-opting that happens by you know bad faith actors and there's also a lot of co-opting by people that are just bored and have nothing else to do and it's it's like a like there are characters sometimes in like uh, these reality shows I watch sometimes where it's like there's a woman that just has nothing better to do so she just gets like too much of a helicopter stepmom and then the stepkid is like you're not my real mom and it's like dude just leave your stepkid alone and go get a life um, and like like I see these well, people and in it's Portland. also deeper than that it's white liberals virtue signaling yeah. to other white liberals yeah that's what I mean it's like they have nothing better to like one of the scourges of late <laughs> late stage capitalism is that of, like even the people who are supposedly privileged are kind of bereft of meaning and purpose and anything to do and so they pick up these really like you know loose concepts on twitter and you know run with it and now they're protesting a, a restaurant because it's supposedly racist because it has some like 19th century word you know just very silly stuff when when we're the most you know when we have more you know black people in prison right now than the you know what like all the insane statistics like to go protest a a restaurant just because you don't like the name of it is just so beyond silly and i do see a lot of that stuff happening here but at the same time like to go back to your example of uh your professor the the college professor um I like I was playing this is gonna be, sounds kind of silly but this game Red Dead Redemption 2 it's got this really good story mode and at one point you see these um like civil war or just after the civil war era like generals and, and like interfacing with native americans and they're being so rude just about their names just like I don't remember the names but you know some like oh like morning crow that's not a real name you know and there, I do also wonder if there's some similarities with like people just wanting to feel better than the new thing, you know, like, oh, like I've, I've heard this from people in my life, you know, like, no, you're not a plural. They, them, I'm never, 
I'm never attaching my, I'm never going along with that. I'm never saying, I'm never using they, them pronouns. And me being like, well, that's interesting because I've never heard you talk about grammar before. Where is this newfound love of grammar coming from? You know, <laughs> and uh, like, it's, you know, it, and it's hard to just like say this to someone directly because it's such an attack, but it's like, hey, is this just you kind of wanting to feel better than the new thing? And like, <laughs> Um, like we talked about, you know, the Evergreen State College and Brett Weinstein. And I said, you know, there's a little bit of a backstory that wasn't picked up on Vice News. And it was, you know, it, I don't entirely agree with this tactic. I, I mean, yeah, I don't agree with this tactic, but there was the, I, there was a protest at Evergreen, which was, um, like they wanted all of the white kids to stay home that day I shouldn't say kids I should say student body because it's definitely an older student body and um Brett Weinstein was like that's racist <laughs> and he made like the the problem was that like the timing in which he said that it was like this was right after like another another like young black man had been shot down and like left to die on the street somewhere. And so it was like the, the tone and the timing and like being someone who wasn't an activist ever before, who was just like a self-described science teacher, you know, and at Evergreen, you don't call people professors. You just call them by their first name. So it was also like, okay, Brett said what? (laughs) And this was your school. You went to the school. Yeah, I wasn't there anymore at the time. I had already graduated. Um, So I I was able to get, like, the backstory when I I came up that summer. Like, it was a few months after that graduation where they had to, like, move the graduation because something else had, you know, jumped the shark on the far right where... And I, I wonder if this was even organic or if, you know, the deep state played a role in this to kind of, like, create a culture war where... People said they were getting, you know, all, especially like the anti-Brett activists were getting death threats. And um, there was a lot of like, I'm sure this was just high school kids, like local Olympia high school kids just getting activated by the news. Like, you know, spray painting swastikas and they probably weren't even real Nazis. They were just being edgy. You know what I mean? But I think that's a lot, a large part of the uh, Nazi contingent on the Internet is that it's kids punking and um, provoking and shit posting, you yeah. know, just to be edgy and, you know, Oh, they tell me I can't do this. Well, watch me. I think right. that is a lot of the, the stuff you see online. Right. But uh, you know, to the 17 year olds at Evergreen, it was like the Nazis are coming for us. Like They, yeah. they believed that in their souls. You know what I mean? Well, and and it for, was those like, who, yeah. for those who don't know Brett, the story is, he was going to go into work that day, no matter what. He was not going to be canceled and kept home because he was a white guy. And so when he went into his classroom, he was chased off campus by some of the students. And that was that was the story that broke in the national press. Yeah. And it, there was like days of him, like just kind of being rude on the, I forget what it was called, but there was like a, like a listserv, like an evergreen listserv that had like all the evergreen instructors on it. And so, and Brett was like, well, I was only talking to the other teachers and it was like, well, yeah, but literally every other teacher at school. (laughs) So obviously that's going to include like 
people that are both student and you know what I mean like the teacher's assistants like the TAs the provosts right like this isn't a private forum Brett (laughs) you know I watched a lot of interviews with him back in the day and one of the things he said that motivated him to speak out is he felt and do something is he felt that it was like these bands were just coming around him and trying to control him and what he could talk about and what he could say and do. And that for him, this was the tipping point. And he was like, I got to do something. And he eventually didn't he get fired. And then he sued the school and they had to pay him $400,000 or something. Yeah. I, and I, you know, I agree with him in a lot of ways. Um, when, when, you know, there's no, no one should ever feel physically threatened ever, you know, and if, if it took a lawsuit to help the school realize and, you know, other school, like you you have to protect your teachers against physical threats, you know, even though I think a lot was lost when I, when I think back to those viral videos, like, yeah, obviously there should have been more protection and stuff. Um, but also I think like Brianna Joy Gray is always making this point, like, don't just bust in like the Kool-Aid man. And I think, okay, that is, that is a, a characteristic of mine sometimes where I forget that we're social beings and the way that a conversation is started is just as important as like the content of the words in the conversation. So that, that is a really good point for all activists. Yeah. <laughs> And so Brett was just kind of like a never cared about racial issues in his whole life. He's already middle-aged at this point. And then he just kind of like walks in with his cargo shorts and sandals and says, let me tell you all how to do activism. It's when you, when you clearly don't care about the dead people, like who were, whose bodies still haven't cooled. (laughs) Like, like that's kind of the 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 vibe, right? It's like you just busted in like the Kool Aid Man, and you're telling us how to do it, you know. And then you're saying that we're infringing on your rights when you're just a pro. You know what I mean? It was like the like even though I I I see where he's coming from and I agree with him and I can see how, especially when your activism like like there is this way, like I said earlier, where you can your solution to racism can create more racism which is what a lot of you know i believe and a lot of black leftists believe is what affirmative action did is that it it didn't lift up the black community at all and it it did a lot of harm um so for sure like there should be pushback but brett just wasn't the right he didn't have the right tactic to doing that and what like the the example i gave at the beginning where i got blackballed from open mic LA comedy, which is, you know, world's smallest violin, because it's no big deal, but I definitely broke in, like, the Kool-Aid man. Like, no one, I I didn't... Well, wait, was the guy actually grifting? Did he have cancer? Did you out him righteously? Did you ever find out? (laughs) Well, what I said was he's not terminal. Yeah, sorry, I'm not giving, I can give the details really quick. He he kept saying he had different forms of mesothelioma, so I knew he was lying. And he'd already been a pathological liar before this happened. So I was kind of like, why is everyone believing this known pathological liar? 
Um, but he had actually been in the hospital and like hit up a bunch of people to come visit him. And he'd be like, I don't know how long I have. You should come visit me. And I think it just like pulled on people's heartstrings real crazy like. And so, um, but when he said, so he kept telling people, I'm terminal, I'm terminal. And then he went on Ellen and Ellen was like, so how much are you doing chemo? And he said, oh, I'm doing chemo once a week. And then she said, how come you haven't lost your hair? And he said, I don't know, and started laughing. And, like, he just got away with it. It was real weird. And it was it was about a week or two after that appearance. He said, um, I'm getting surgery that's going to extend my life five years. And I was just like, being terminal and being eligible for life-extending surgery is not possible. So you're not terminal. Um. And then it was like I had so much was going on in my life and I made a Facebook post <laughs> that was so dumb. And I said, I just don't care anymore. So I'm sent because all the stuff is going on in my life. My mom has dementia and uh, Quincy Jones is not terminal. <laughs> <laughs> he, his stage name, this is how dumb this guy is that he picked a stage name of someone who's one of the most famous people in human history. I know. I love Quincy. <laughs> yeah, so I'm not talking shit about, I mean, I'm not smack, <laughs> sorry, Chris, I'm not talking uh, bad about the actual real, you know, beloved Quincy Jones. Um, this is another guy. But yeah, so then pe people didn't really hone in on the word terminal. And so everyone assumed that I was saying he doesn't have cancer. And okay. I just don't know. I don't know why he was in the hospital when he was. He was clearly sick with something. It's pretty clear to me that he never did chemo because he was going out every night. He was never sick. Um, he was, you know, bragging about his sexual prowess. And I know, you know, I've known people who did chemo. They definitely, if they were doing chemo every week, they weren't having sex several months in, you know what I mean? Um, so it was just such an obvious lie. And then the way that people got, when I was like, you know, he's, people don't want to be told especially in such a rude way that they've been duped um like there's like <laughs> like it's easier to fool someone than explain to them how they haven't been i forget the saying but oh, i know what you mean and it's so true and you know i'm sympathetic to Bree's position we don't all need to be the kool-aid man until we do and and, <laughs> and this is my posture because i've been accused of being so aggressive with some of my positions on vaccines. I like to red peel people with my videos and my satirical and parody comedy. And I do it intentionally. I'm intentionally aggressive. People say you're passive aggressive. I'm like, no, there is not a passive bone in my body. I am simply aggressive. And I am aggressive on behalf of kids. And I, you know, what I've been screaming about the most is vaccines for the last 30 years. In any forum, anybody who will listen to me warning young parents against these poisons. And that has won very few friends. But my fellow activists get it. We understand how crucial it is. We understand the trajectory of where everything's heading in terms of chronic disease. And I was just working on a project this morning before we started this show. And it just, it gets me to hear about these, what they're terming, turbo cancers that are now everywhere everybody's got turbo cancer it shows up quick it's the worst of the worst people are dropping like flies from it where did that come from well i had dr leonard horowitz on my podcast 
a couple of years ago, the very day that the Pfizer vaccine dropped, I said, Len, what, what are we going to see? What's going to be the most common side effect from these shots? He said, in three to seven years, you are going to see cancer everywhere. Cancer as the side effect from the shot. Because the poisons that go in there, they kind of hibernate for a little while. And then like the AIDS virus, they just all of a sudden, bam, you're sick. You're sicker than sick. And so this morning, I'm on Twitter, and here's Peter McCullough himself, the world's leading cardiologist, saying we're seeing turbo cancers everywhere. And I'm like, okay, here we are. So the project I did was to go get that clip from my old podcast, put it in a new movie, and I'm sharing it everywhere. I don't want to be right about this stuff, BK. I don't want to be right. I don't want to be in a place where I'm, you know, feeling... Like, I, I need to gloat or see if you were just as smart as me, none of this would have happened to you. Right. That's not that's not where my heart is. I Yeah, I feel that. I I definitely see your, if you see and feel your sincerity, for sure. I'm concerned I'm, about people's fertility. I'm concerned yeah. about pregnant women. I'm concerned about the babies having heart attacks in their mother's wombs. And it no, is yes, this, yeah. this deep concern that's fueled me to be hyper-aggressive with my messaging and then try and find the balance between am I being effective or am I just pissing everybody off? You know, that's a fine line. You know, you don't always know what response, but I've had enough people reach out to me and say, thank you for what you just said. Thank you for your position. Uh, that it, ke- it keeps me going. Yeah. And I, I just want to, that first of all that's very cool to hear what you just said i mean i'm happy for that for you you know that you have community and fellow activists you know to help keep you going because yeah it's do it as as a human being doing anything alone feels a little bit impossible the more i think about it like we all need community to kind of like fuel us um uh but also like i i have a good friend she's only a few years older than me and when she was 31 or 32, she got diagnosed with um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And, you know, she assumes it's from the weed killer because that's where, that's probably what caused it in most everyone, you know? And, um, like, I'm I'm worried that we'll never know if you're right and wrong or wrong because there's so, everything is causing cancer. Like, like RFK Jr. is talking about, we're so awash in poisons. And I I hope that he get someone to work with him who is queer or trans because then he'll have more credibility when he talks about the poisons and how it is affecting fertility. And like, I'm not a, like, it could be (laughs) that, um, like, I'm not super, uh, convinced that the, the rise in autism is an exact match to vaccines because I think that, you know, there's just a more inclusive vision of what autism is. Like, um, you know, a lot of us on call in would, could be, you know, I've been diagnosed, uh, with, uh, you know, quote unquote, high functioning autism. And I think that maybe RFK Jr. just doesn't imagine that people like me exist, but I still understand that we're just awash in poisons and that it could be increasing, the amount of um like I'm, it could be increasing the amount of trans people like i i feel like that would be 
I'm afraid of him saying that because it'll just like look transphobic and like anti-queer but like if he's if he we don't need to be afraid of the truth (laughs) i just mean as far as you know that's the truth that's the truth he did mention the frog study during that interview with joe rogan yeah like like, dude are you sure you want to go here (laughs) (laughs) but that's what is like i want the truth to travel further and if you know that's why sometimes the rhetoric and the ops is important you know that's the you know, some it is hard to tell. Like sometimes it is just like, like I've been thinking about how uh, Nick Cruz did a debate with Destiny. It's kind of an older debate now; it might be one or two years old. But you know, he he just didn't give in at all. He was like, "No, I'm not going to not use that word. I'm going to say what I believe." And you know, it just it it might turn people off, but it's my truth. And like, um, yeah. I, well, I got to tell you, back in the day, I was writing an article about. That's probably like 20 years ago about progesterone because just about every woman who goes into a hospital is given a drug called Pitocin to either augment or start her labor. And I had found some studies talking about how the Pitocin affects boys' brains in the same area that's that homosexual men have certain things pop up and it affected in the same way. So these scientists were theorizing is this Pitocin messing with these babies' brains before they're even born. And I wrote my my paper, I put it out there. Uh, There were a few moms who were interested. And when I went back to find the research, it had been scrubbed from the internet. And you can't find that anywhere now. And so somebody somewhere did not want that to get out. And so I'm always interested when there's censorship of a topic. um, What are the goals? Who's funding it? What's the narrative? And I just think these are things we should explore. You know, I'm a childbirth educator. I'm passionate about pregnancy and natural childbirth and encouraging parents to do it without the medications. That's been my work for 35 years. That's been my main work. The vaccine thing was just a side issue. Yeah, that's that's how my partner uh, decided to not give certain vaccines to their kids because they were, you know, they did home births for both their both their births and um, like told me stuff about childbirth that I didn't, you know, so, so I could see how it's it does feel like something that's the most natural thing in the world that is for some reason in our, in our modern society, almost like secret knowledge that you have to go seek out <laughs> um, to find out about natural childbirth. And it's, there is an underground community of moms, midwives, doulas, childbirth educators sharing good information. And what's been interesting to me is how those spaces have been disrupted on Facebook and other places. They don't want moms doing peer support and sharing good information with each other. And that has also been part of my story because of how censored my sites have been by Google and other, and other people on other spaces. They don't want us sharing the facts about how to craft a healthy baby and what what type of work needs to go into the mom's diet to make certain that she carries the baby full term and prevents prematurity and 
has enough stamina, physical stamina to give birth and what do we do to prepare and how to breastfeed? They don't want people having good information. They're okay with the propaganda, you know, but it's, it's the formula manufacturers, the vaccine manufacturers, waiting yeah. in the wings, the food manufacturers, you know. And the oligarchy wants us divided. And I mean, I really believe that the oligarchy is censoring you, like, because you're a tenacious, active, sincere activist who can build bridges with anyone because you have social skills. Like, you're the most feared person, I think, to the oligarchy. And, um, I, you know, it, the, the, the connections, you know, especially with the internet, if, you know, they, they probably fear all kinds of, connect, you know, that, like, Dickie said that he was part of a, a chat room with Tom Hartman and all of Tom Hartman's, you know, fans, and it just went away one day. And maybe Tom Hartman didn't even know that it went away one day, you know what I mean? But it's just like, what a, what a, what a huge hit to activism that that happened all those years ago. And Dickie's, you know, no, we thought it would last forever. So we didn't get each other's phone numbers or anything. And imagine what kind of mini activisms or, or, you know, new understandings of the world that those people could have had if they'd stayed in touch. Um, it's just like, yeah, we have a, uh, what was the other thing? Oh, sorry. I got, there's one more thing I wanted to say about, um, I'm not, oh, seeing, yeah. I'm not seeing any evidence of your brain struggling with autism or lack of social skills. So whoever told you that, I mean, <laughs> well, it's because I've worked on it fine. a lot. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like, like when I first started playing poker, you know, I just, I couldn't win. And then it was like, I worked at it. I worked at it. I worked at it. And so that kind of like my experience with poker has kind of given me the mindset of just because something isn't natural, doesn't mean you can't you know, lock in, focus, and then build some new skills. Exactly. And so I've been, like, I definitely used to be a lot worse with the interrupting and with the not being able to imagine where the other person's coming from. And, um, but a lot of how I understand myself as autistic, it's, it's not just the social stuff. It's also, like, how I have meltdowns, how I have um, really quick, like, burnout, um, and how I was really slow to like social develop as a kid like the way that I just kind of like didn't know how to play with the other kids in the first grade um and I as far as autism also like we talked about at the beginning of the conversation how people are just really quick to kind of um not critical think at all and just do whatever authority does or whatever the group is doing and so I I do think that there's kind of a like a in the genetics of humans like a a roulette wheel where like 5%, somewhere between two and 5% of, you know, maybe 10% of everyone that's born is supposed to be a little bit uh, neurologically different so that we're not just lemmings jumping off of a cliff, that it was like a, an evolutionary benefit to have diversity in our neurotypes. So, you know, maybe it's, you know, in modern society, it's a disability to not be able to go work 40 hours a week without having a nervous breakdown. But the whole time that we were developing as, you know, villages of 100 people, to have two or three people in the group be like, wait a minute, maybe this new idea isn't a good one. Or to have two or three people in the group, you know, thinking differently about the plants and animals so that 
there's still creativity and still people trying new medicines because we're not just um, being complacent in our, in our ways. Um, and that the poison, you know, what RFK Jr. is talk talking about, all of these excess poisons ha have really screwed with the roulette wheel. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. I, I and, totally agree. Yeah. And I learned from my partner, like, it's a, like, uh, you know, most females are born with, um, like, a certain number of eggs, right? <laughs> you, you can speak about this more articulately than I can. <laughs> like, and that those eggs are, you know, they're, they're, like, in your body, they're, you know, like, there's so much, like, I don't know, I used to think of bodies as being, like, this constantly, you know, people say, oh, all your cells replace every seven years or whatever, but it's almost kind of not true, you know? And then like there, there are parts of your body that store everything that kind of go through. I'm not being articulate at all, but well, I, I guess I'm just saying, I really, I am also concerned about the poisons in our environment. Let me share with you just one verse that comforts my heart from scripture. And I don't even remember where it is, but it's basically heavenly father saying, I give unto men and women weaknesses so that I can try their faith. And if they will humble themselves and come unto me, I will make their weaknesses, their strengths. So we have the ability to change. We have the ability to grow and mature. And he's the master healer. So if we are sick and befuddled by physical or mental illness and are having a horrifying time coping, fitting in, I've had those moments myself. I've been locked up in mental hospitals four times. I know how it feels to be the outlier in my family and in my community, definitely stepping to the beat of a different drummer, but Heavenly Father has the ability to cure us with real long-lasting cure. I'm a witness to that. My body, my mind are a witness to that. I'm functioning. I'm functioning very well. BK's been in my home. He knows I was able to put food on the table in a timely way and have someone over for supper. It was really tasty, I mean, by the way. I don't think I ever told well, you that, that it was great. <laughs> these are the things that are evidence of someone functioning. So for those people out there, and I'm thinking like my mother and my siblings, who think I just lie in my bed in the fetal position, sucking my thumb all day long, thinking about mean things I can write on the internet, that's not who I am. You know, that's not me. I'm highly functioning. And I have healed to the point where I am not dependent on their medications anymore. I have been incredibly dependent on psychiatric meds and allergy meds, breathing meds for my whole life. And guess what? As I have decoupled from the system that the oligarchs want all of us to be patients for life, dependent yeah. on them, their yeah. drugs for life. Yep. As I have weaned from that system, I have found a measure of health and well-being that nobody would have predicted was possible for somebody who was sick as I was. I was told yeah. by the psychiatrist, you will be on these medications for the rest of your life. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm going to go figure it out. And I did. And it's yeah. been joyful. Yeah, that is, I, I love that story. <laughs> And I'm so happy for you about that. I mean, I don't love the part that you were told, you know, that you had to be on it for life, but the, 
you know, yeah, your courage and strength is really inspirational. Well, we all have so much more power than we know. And honestly, it starts with our daily diet and our kitchen work. And if, if individuals will just get out in their kitchen for a few minutes every day and thoughtfully prepare some wonderful meals, whole foods, take some vitamins, stay hydrated, I, I'm telling you that is half the battle. It's your daily habits. How are you fueling? What fuel do you put in your body for your body and your brain to function? If it's, if it's caffeine, if it's drugs, sugar, you can fuel yourself with all of that, but there will, it will come at a cost. Yeah. And quite often the cost is adrenal fatigue and your blood sugar levels are up and down and that causes mood swings. And if you can learn how to fuel yourself with food, herbs, vitamins and minerals, I like to use essential oils, which when you put an essential oil on your skin, it goes into your bloodstream and behaves like a food. Your body treats it like it's food. It goes into the cells, the cells release the toxins, and it behaves like food. And so I am constantly nourishing myself with all of these whole substances, and they work. They work. I believe I, you know, 100%. I, I was I was suffering from long COVID, and I found my way into a chat room. I mean, I, I don't, you know, it's anecdotal, but but someone said that they were just drinking Ensure Max protein, and I just only drank that for a few weeks. And I think it might have been a mix between being gluten free and the uh, vitamins. And there's a lot more vitamins in the Max protein Ensure than the other forms. And I think that. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't think I fully recovered. I still feel a little bit more like slow and brain foggy from compared to pre-COVID. And you know, I also I don't know if it was the vaccine. I just don't know because <laughs> I did. Well, sometimes I did the job. Give, sometimes giving your body a break from simple carbohydrates, yeah, it really does allow you to heal when you're doing that high protein thing. We've done that several times with my husband because he's really struggled with gluten issues. And there have been times when he just had to go off all, all carbohydrates and just eat a meat and a little bit of vegetable diet. But that's where he found healing for those weeks. And it kind of helped rebuild his gut. And, you know, times, times and seasons, you can, you can figure it out. But, man, we are coming up on two hours. And yeah. what, what a joyful conversation. <laughs> it is so good to talk this clearly and uh, deeply about these issues because yeah. they affect, they affect all of us. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously we didn't, you know, figure it all out or get to the bottom of it, but I, I, I do think that we went a lot farther than anyone else ever does, you know? Well, like I told you guys uh, the other day in one of the rooms where my conversations typically end in chat rooms or on forums like this is with me being canceled and, and, called a hater and kicked out of the room. <laughs> that is the joy of, of hosting my own space. You know, I'm not, not going to yeah. kick myself out, but it happens enough that, um, you know, it's kind of been a pattern in my life. I would like to end the show with the 10 minute podcast that I made on that gender, uh, parody, uh, gender parody post on my acting site because, I want it to be the bookend of where we started with the show, which was, 
you know, was my piece too harsh? Was it hateful? Did it convey a message that transgender people are child molesters? Should I take it down? You know, is it still too far, too hard? My inclination would be to leave it up as it, as written, hoping that someone would read it and say, hey, I want to talk to you about this. And then I could have the opportunity to flesh out my thoughts. What do you think? I think I'm probably the last person who's going to show up wanting to talk. I mean, especially because, like I said, if I'd found that, you know, just out of the blue, then I definitely wouldn't want to be like, oh, well, let me just reach out to this person who thinks that my community is full of child molesters. <laughs> you know, like that would just that would feel like a self-harm almost like kind of I mean, I, I know, you know, that you're not a hateful person and that we can have a fruitful conversation, but. Yeah, I, I do think that there's a bit of a signal failure in the piece. Um, I, I appreciate that feedback very much because, I um, like I said, we all have our biases and our hypocrisies. And so, I'm, and I'm always looking for the right words, you know. And in some circumstances, there are no right words. Any position you take on a transgender topic is going to be a loaded position no matter what it is, and it's going to be controversial. And so I don't really anticipate anybody from the transgender community reaching out to me. I'm thinking in the future, perhaps a journalist or someone in a theatrical space, hey, really, let's clarify this. I'm not sure I can hire you. <laughs> I'm not sure I wanna work with you if you're such a bigot, you know. I'm more concerned about that side of it, but, um. Any final thoughts for the overall show? I, maybe you could like post a link to this as an addendum to it or something. Oh, I was already planning to but put no. the spot. I was oh, planning yeah. to put the Spotify version of this conversation. If you felt good about it. Yeah. In the yeah I think, I think it was productive. I, I think it would be a good thing to have out in the world for sure. Okay. I'm going to do that. Wonderful. All right. Well, I'm going to finish with this. Um, podcast then it's just like 10 minutes of further clarification on my issues with gender parity in the theater it's the jenny hatch radio show and i'm your host today i'm going to share with you my history of being a conservative in the performing arts the most magical thing i did as a young adult was I chose to get married young. I left the theater and I married my husband and we immediately welcomed our first daughter. And the second year of our marriage, I became a Bradley childbirth educator and nothing has influenced me and my life more than reading the literature tied to becoming a childbirth educator in America. And for eight years, I taught and was a certified teacher and read all of the underground literature around childbirth and politics and the politics of being a woman and what it means to be free in regards to our bodily integrity. And when I came up for air after breastfeeding and taking care of little ones and started looking around at the theater world, I wanted to introduce my children to musical theater. So I started looking into all the theater companies that were going in Boulder, Colorado, where we live. 
And I had some skills. I directed a lot as a teenager, and I performed up to the point of doing semi-professional summer stock. I felt comfortable in offering to share my talents with the people in my community. This resulted in me directing a lot of shows tied to my church and my, my kids' schools. But when I stepped out into the community and tried to direct a musical for a community group, it quickly became apparent that the university that I had attended, which is Brigham Young University, which indicated to the person hiring that I was a Mormon and probably a conservative, was the biggest problem that she had with my resume. It wasn't my skills, it wasn't my lack of directing ability, but as soon as she realized that I was a conservative, she was no longer interested in being me being a part of her company. And so that was the first time I experienced what I would term conservative bigotry. People rejecting me for my beliefs, whether they are religious or political. And from there, it just continued on. There were various situations where I had a chance to perform a solo or direct a show or be involved in something. And I also did some professional writing for magazines. And it also, <laughs> certain editors, once they found out I was a conservative, my stuff did not get published. And the bigotry continued on into uh, my conservative activism. I experienced a lot of blowback for the things that I said and did on the internet. And I won't spend, spend too much time talking about that side of things, but it's been horrifying. And I can tell you that it is horrifying to be rejected by your peers and by your world and by your tribe for your beliefs. I've experienced now it now for most of my adult life. And as a 51-year-old woman, I have determined that my goal for the rest of my life is to just stand comfortably in the truth. So today, when I saw that the Statera Arts Women's Group that's fighting for gender parity, which I am all for, I want to see women owning Hollywood studios and as the gatekeepers in New York for Broadway and as the directors and producers and dramaturgs and stage managers for every bit and particle of theater, top to bottom, inside out, opera, all of the performing arts, I would like to see gender parity for women. That being said, I do not believe that we have to tip over the cliff into Marxist and postmodernist insanity in order to reach gender parity. And the two are two very different things in my mind. And I see that Statera has fallen prey to the Marxist in our midst who would put their speech codes and their uh, worldview all over the performing arts. And I'm here to tell you that the two are not compatible. You cannot have free speech in the theater and have these little Marxists with their clipboards walking around telling us what we can say, what we can think, what we can write, what we can do on the stage. It's not going to work. And when I saw the Instagram post last night, my heart just leapt up into my throat because I know, I know how it feels to experience the rejection that comes when you say, I'm not going to participate in that. I felt it. I know how it feels. And I'm sure that there are many who wonder if I stand against this thing, will I ever work again? 
Will I ever sing again? Will I ever be allowed on a stage again if I stand up to this particular form of tyranny? And I don't know. I don't know if me making this movie or a blog post or Instagram or a Twitter post is going to, to get me banned from theater for the rest of my life. All I know is that I have to stand in the truth. And the truth is we have to stand for free speech. There is a long, long tradition of people in the performing arts being the first to stand up and demand our rights of expression. And if we bow down, kowtow to this thing that wants to monitor our speech and our thoughts, we will lose everything. I feel so passionate about this because these same people have pretty much killed comedy. There are comics who cannot go perform on university campuses because of these speech police and it needs to stop. If we lose our sense of humor, if we lose the things that make us laugh, that's the best theater. The comedy is the best theater. And if, it, if it's gone, what will we be left with? A bunch of people up on stage preaching to us through song and dance and music what we can say and what we can think and what we can believe. And I will not go down that path. I just won't. So I hope that this podcast has given you some food for thought. I really hope you will take some time to take these notions of using the correct pronoun and the correct speech and we're all big hearted around this or that or whatever that they're couching it in and take it to its logical conclusion. And the conclusion is if you don't have the correct ideology, religious, political, you can't be a part of their club. You can't be in their show. You can't be in their movie. You can't be in their musical. And that is a shame because there are wonderful, talented people who are conservatives, who are on the right, who want to contribute their talents and their time to the performing arts. And if you shut all of those people out, or even people who don't even really have a political or a religious point of view, but they're not quite far left and progressive enough to be in your show, to be in your choir, to sing in your opera, and you're going to cut those people out, what are you going to be left with? How far progressive, how far left are you prepared to go? Are you going to shut yourself out from all of the best talent? From all the clearest minds? From all of these bright, young, wonderful performers who are coming up through the ranks of our schools and our community theaters and our religious groups ready and waiting to share their talent with the world. And you're going to shut these people out because they don't adhere to your speech code. How dare you? We are Americans and there have been wars fought to make sure that we have our free speech, that we don't have to bow down to tyranny. I have family members who fought in every skirmish, starting with the French and Indian War and working all the way up to Vietnam. Heck, even the, the Gulf Wars. And, and the blood that was shed to make certain that this land would remain free, that we would have this 
blessing of free speech. It is not something to be squandered or tossed away like it's a nothing. My name is Jenny Hatch. I am an actor in Longmont, Colorado. I am a writer, a director, and a movie maker. And I am Statera. I think. If they'll let me stay, I am Statera too. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you have a great day. So that was my podcast. And, um... BK left a comment, accidentally unmuting, so I'll leave the stage. Wonderful. It was so grateful. I'm so if, if you want to come back on to just have, like, one final message, go ahead and, and pop up into the queue. Um, what a great conversation. Two hours with BK. Talking about important things. Any final words for us? Uh, I just want to give a quick plug to the YouTuber ContraPoints. Um, she's definitely a blue no matter who. <laughs> and so don't listen to that part. But her, you know, especially like her last 10 videos on on gender. and it, She's a philosopher. And so her deep thinking on the subject is, is pretty unparalleled, I think. Um, and then just ignore the blue no matter who stuff. Okay. I will. Uh, do you have a, t- a title for this show that you think would be appropriate? I called it A Chat with BK on Gender. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a good title. Okay. I will just say that, and the subheading will be A Few Thoughts. A Few Thoughts Between Friends. Should we say that? Yeah, I love that. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, and really, you know, I don't think you ever feel should feel like you need to self-censor around me. You know, if if you're concerned that you're going to do or say something that's going to upset me, don't don't go there in your own mind. Say speak your mind in any forum at any time because I'm more concerned about people getting to know me really well and going yeah, no thanks, and slowly backing away, which honestly, that's most of my relationships. The more people get to know me, the more they hate me. Um, my And my best friends are the ones who, you know, they, they know me really well, and they're like, well, that's Jenny. We love her, <laughs> and we're, we're still good friends, you know? So yeah. I would love to have you in that category of friend, and that's honestly why I reached out to you on this topic, because I wanted to hear from a trans person exactly how you felt about my piece. Did I go too far? Was it too extreme? And you graciously said, yes, I would love to do that. And so I'm grateful that that's where your heart is. And I hope it continues to be the case as our friendship develops and grows over the years, because I want to have you as my friend. I want you to have you as my good friend. And I don't want us to ever feel like we have to walk on eggshells or, you know, if you ever want to say to me, you know, cut the shit, you know, stop. You're going too far. I hope you feel comfortable to say that because I appreciate it when people have taken the time to say right to my face, look, you're being an inconsistent hypocrite. You need to just slow down. I appreciate that. So, you know, yeah, I, I, I think it's really interesting that I've had such an easier time talking to you 
who's you know on the right for lack of a better simple term for you know than people here on this app on the left about gender and these issues like and it's it's because of you being easier to talk to um and i don't feel like i've had to walk i don't i don't think i have to walk around on eggshells around you about anything because i think you are truly intellectually curious um and so when you you know i think a lot of people would write a piece like that if i read a piece like that i would assume for most people that they wouldn't want to be in conversation like because most people don't like that's just the vibe you know it's like like uh, arms crossed, you're wrong, and I have nothing to hear from you. And the vibe from you is like, you know, your arms are open, your ears are open, and um, I. Well, and just remember what I said. My claws come out at the very <laughs> at the very notion of a child actor being defiled by anybody, whether they're straight, trans, whatever. That is where the passion comes in, is this overkeening desire to protect the little ones in our midst. That yeah. is the ultimate goal. And I mean, if, I missed, yeah. if I missed on my messaging, it was done under that banner of, look, I'm a wounded actor. I have suffered and have been trying to heal from my own assaults my whole life. I would prefer that we create a culture where this can never happen to anyone. That's the goal. And I believe we can do it. Yeah. And I, you know, a lot of, I've known a lot of people who are, you know, hurt in the Catholic church who then their response is to be against religion. And they're, you know, I don't want to be showing, I, you know, I don't want to be like, let me tell you how to respond to your trauma. So I don't tell them that, but, but there's a part of me that's like, well, we can't just get rid of religion. Like religion brings people a lot of, you know, comfort and joy and people order their lives around it and social lives and stuff. So I don't think that the way to end, you know, pedophilia is to get rid of the Catholic church, but there has to be, <laughs> we have to be doing more than what's being done for sure. Um, and also I, I, you know, growing up, like, I don't know if you remember the story of Matthew Shepard. I know we've already been going over two hours, but I just want to really No, quickly, I remember please. it. I remember it very well. I, I recently, on my way home from on my road trip, I, I drove through, I, I went up like through Cheyenne and then I saw the signs for Laramie and I knew immediately what Laramie meant to me, you know? And I, so I had to stop in that town and I stopped at um, the school and there's a memorial bench and there were a lot of like really nice little things left there. But, and there was also a little sticker that said, you know, Jesus hearts you. And there's a part of me that felt like, well, the, <laughs> like because of like my own like growing up it felt like the enemy of the lgbtq community like my enemy is like religious people was how it was set up on the media and i wonder now if that was um intentional and you know something really horrible that was done by the oligarchy and obviously oversimplified but like even when i saw that sticker it felt to me like that sticker said if only matthew had known jesus better then he wouldn't have died. Like the but for oh. cause of this death was his lack, lack of his relationship with Jesus. And like, oh. it's only because of my own history, you know, that I, that I'm triggered by a sticker like that. And, you know, but I do, I know that it's so much more nuanced than that. And that I was in the way that like, like the, the acrimony that still exists in that town. Like when I was researching it more, like it, it was a very comp, like, 
like I believe that the criminals, you know, were doing crime. Like it's not like the whole thing was made up, but the way that MTV simplified that story and created acrimony in that town, I do think that there's been like a, a you know, the oligarchy has been exploiting our, you know, our desire for a better world in order to keep us separate, you know? Um, right. And so now, something... any, anything they can do to cause division between families and friends and yeah. in the community, they, they definitely agitate for that. And, and I, so I, I know, yeah. I know we can do better. I know we can. Yeah. I, I, I really am... want to take the, the, you know, when I think about Matthew Shepard, I think about wanting to do better, like take his legacy to mean something more than us against them, you know? So I just wanted to wrap up with that kind of a oh, you know, radical togetherness, egal- you know, Moving yes. forward with love kind of thing. But yeah, I'm there for it. I need to go make lunch for my sweetheart, but thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Your, your big heartedness. It means everything to me that you're willing to talk to me. And on this level of understanding, it, it just warms my heart. So thank you. Mine too. I appreciate you. All right. I'm going to finish off with my little jingle. I hope everybody who's listening has a wonderful day. And thank you for tuning in.